And also thanks to the worship team. You guys always, always move me. Music always moves me more than anything, I think. Uh, let's pray together. And I'm going to, I think, before we, before we pray, I just want to mention that I don't think it's, since we've been here at Shepherd, I don't ever remember a time where we were more people uh, who I love has had more health problems and suffering than at this time in our, in our history that, I, that I've been here anyway. And not just here in our church, but also for Sue and I and other, other places as well. And, um, and I thought we ought to pray for people we know who are really suffering in this time. And uh, we know a lot of them. And so I'm just going to spend some time in, in quiet. Um, and I'm not going to mention anybody, uh, maybe for privacy reasons, but also I, I will inevitably, inevitably uh, leave someone out. So I just want to spend a little bit, just a little bit of quiet time. And just people come to your mind, just, if it's just something as simple as holding them before the Lord. Uh, you know, we pray for healing or pray for however you feel led to pray. But just the, just the simple act of holding them before the Lord for a few minutes, and um, so I will pray and, and leave some silence, and then we'll close here in a minute. Lord, we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us today, so that all that who are suffering that is going on and around us, and people we love, and lives of people we love, that you will touch them by the presence of your power and your victory of the resurrection. Father God, who is here right now, we take time to pray this morning for those we love and those who are hurting. And we know that the fullness of your word feeds us, and uh, we ask that it transform those uh, seeds of truth and promises into miracles of love and joy and healing. Father, your everlasting love is offered to us even in the upheavals of life, the ups and the downs. You hold the center as life seems to spin out of control sometimes. And so, Father, we do pray in silence for peace that we can't understand, but we know it's a peace that cannot be shaken. And so, Father, we surrender ourselves to you. We surrender those we love to you and to your grace. We trust and rely on your strength to get us through, to heal, to bring grace and peace into our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As uh, Kendra said, we were, were finishing up uh, Isaiah this week. Uh, of course, we didn't look through every single verse, every passage, every paragraph, every chapter of Isaiah. It's just some major themes. And, I, and one of the reasons I wanted Rob to read that passage out of Revelation 
is uh, because basically that passage of Revelation is describing the same thing that Isaiah is describing in the last, last uh, chapters of the book, chapter 60 through 66, primarily. Here's in other parts of the book also, but primarily in those last chapters. And I wanted us to see how this is the story that runs all through Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, from, from, the, from the creation and the fall all the way to the consummation. And we, just, we see it uh, through the prophets, through the, the covenant with Abraham, through the Gospels, through Paul's letters, and ultimately to the last book of the Bible. And it's just, it runs through the whole book. So I really wanted us to see that uh, this morning, because that's really pretty much what we're going to be talking about. And we're going to be looking at chapter 65, the last half of chapter 65 this morning, where we see God putting things right. Uh, most of us know the, the, hymn, the hymn to secularism from John Lennon uh, called Imagine. We know that, that song. It's, it's played all the time. It's a nice song. You know, I, I enjoy it. It's a nice, nice song. But it's a, it's a hymn basically to secularism. And he, he tells us to imagine a world without evil it's easy if you try. Well, it's not easy to me, <laughs> frankly. Uh, I, you, know, uh, all, you know, with all due respect to John Lennon, I find it really difficult to imagine. Uh, when I look around the world and, and try to imagine what that even looks like, you know, what does it look like a world without evil? Maybe it's a world without terrorists or a world without communism uh, or, uh, you know, a world with, um, uh, without... The, the national bank or, or dictators or, or whatever, you know. Or on the other hand, we, people would imagine a world without capitalism where rich people exploit the poor people and half the world is in unpayable debt. Or imagine the world without B-52 bombers or landmines or, you know, whatever. And that's just kind of a, a basic dualistic approach uh, that our way of life is better than their way of life and it's us versus them. Uh, I also have a trouble imagine another kind of dualism where uh, evil would be disappeared from the earth because this world is material and it's bodily and it's evil and, and really the good and good stuff and the, and the world without evil is really the spirit world where we are, are disembodied souls and uh, there's no material, there's no, it's just the spirit and we're on the cloud playing our non-physical harps, I guess, I don't know, but you know, it's this kind of thing that's out there in, in the spirit world. Uh, I also have a hard time believing that it happens uh, gradually, which was kind of the mindset in the 19th century and early 20th century, where we thought that it would, it would just develop gradually, and people thought that these Christian countries, the more these Christian countries in Europe would conquer the world, then we would actually usher in the kingdom. Well, then these Christian countries end up fighting each other in two world wars. And uh, we thought, that's, that's not it. So it is hard for me to imagine uh, this, this idea. But Isaiah presents another alternative, a different vision. Uh, we've looked at Isaiah before Christmas as Advent, as these promises of the coming Messiah. And we looked at these prophecies of the birth of uh, what we, as Christians, we identify him as Jesus of Nazareth, this coming Messiah. And then after Christmas, we kind of looked at how God became king, and he becomes king through this astonishing work of a servant who is described with, uh, with power and, uh, and, a, and a, a, an arm of strength, but also a heart of gentleness, that he is described with the strength of a warrior, but the heart of a shepherd. 
And then uh, it kind of goes a little bit further, and we found out that the, the servant is beaten, and he kind of wonders if this, if this is it's all in vain or not, and finally he ends up being killed. And, uh, and it's, it turns out that there's this astonishing thing that God does through this suffering servant to become king. And we see that played out in the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And so we get to the last half or last uh, section of the book of Isaiah and we see this picture in the front, the pic this picture in, in the future. Now the cross and the resurrection is foundational to all Christian thinking. It's foundational to everything we do. It's foundational to, to God's plan in the future. It's foundational to, to know where we are today and what we're supposed to do today so we know what what Jesus did, we know what Jesus is going to do, and then what we're supposed to do in the interim. And he gives us this clear vision of what God's plan is, of what God's plan in the future. And I believe that we need to take that into our heart and into our souls, that if we don't take that clear vision, and I think it's important that we don't just preach on what we're supposed to do today and what we're supposed to do tomorrow, but we see that vision that Isaiah, that Isaiah paints and the vision that Jesus himself paints and the vision of Paul and ultimately the book of Revelation. And we see that in our, in, our, as our, in our goal of where God's plan has taken us. And I believe God wants us to take this into our soul and heart because if we don't, then we end up getting bogged down. We get up getting bogged down in, in doctrinal disputes and secondary issues and arguing over this or that and... And, just get, and we get confused about what our calling is and what our vocation is. And so I think God gives us this picture to know this is where we're headed. This is where God's plan has taken us. And what do we do in the meantime? That this is a different way of dealing with evil. So yes, imagine that we have a world without evil. Yes, it is difficult to do. But Isaiah gives us a vision of that. And he takes it in a different, different route. He acknowledges that there needs to be radical changes. In fact, he says, there will be a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And that's where Isaiah takes us. Isaiah takes us in this new creation, this new heaven, and this new earth. Now, Isaiah is like a lot of the prophets, especially like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Zechariah, like a lot of prophets. There's lots of laments. There's lots of grief. There's lots of sadness. There's lots of... Of, of despair in the book but he has an answer to the lament and Isaiah's answer to the lament is a new creation is these radical changes that this is how we are going to experience the fullness of God's will eventually and he talks about this Jerusalem and Jerusalem uh, he talks about Jerusalem as this it's a kind of a, a stand-in for the entire new earth when he talks about Jerusalem and he talks about this new Jerusalem going to be existing, and, and he talks about the temple. Now, we know that uh, the temple is actually Jesus Christ now. We know this from John. John tells us over and over again that Jesus, that the temple is basically redundant because Jesus is now the place where heaven and earth meet. And he says, I, you know, tear this temple down, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. When he goes and cleans out the temple, he says, you know, this is, this is redundant. He is now the place where where Heaven, and then if you go to um, Revelation 21, further, a little bit further down from where Rob read, we see John saying, and, and John is, is very big on this idea that Jesus is the new temple. He says, I didn't see the temple in the city. This was because the Lamb 
And the Lord God, who rules over all, is the temple. He is the temple. He is where it all meets. And so Jesus is the center of this new heaven and new earth. And it will be a whole redemption story is wrapped up in this. And, and Habakkuk 2.14, oh, I'm sorry, I, yeah, there it is. The earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And it's just like we cannot separate the waters from the sea. We can't separate the glory of God, the heaven and earth, that they will become one. And this is where they, they come and, and overlap. That's the whole point. That's the whole vision that he has, that heaven and earth will become one and they will overlap. And right now, there is this veil between heaven and earth, and every now and then, we kind of pierce it sometimes, uh, maybe with the reading of the scripture, with, the, with prayers, with celebrating with communion. Uh, if we're serving the least of these, Jesus says, I'm there. There are different things that happen, and they, they kind of break through. The Celtics used to call this thin places, where heaven and earth are so close together, you get a glimpse of what it is. We even sang about it this morning. In uh, Maltby Babak's great hymn, that last verse, this is my father's world, oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. This is the vision of Isaiah. This is what he's looking. This is the, the promise of the Christian gospel. This new heaven and new earth. And I, I feel bad that there are so many people, Christians and non-Christians, who get this confused, that this is after this interim period, after we die. After death, we go to be with Jesus somehow. Paul talks about being with the Lord. How that works, I don't know. What that looks like, we don't know. The Bible is really unclear. But this new heaven and new earth, that is the destination. That is the, that is the, the fullness of God's plan. A bodily resurrection where he will, we will he'll resurrect our decaying bodies and he will resurrect a decaying planet and he will dwell with his people. That's what we look forward to. That is our goal. And that's what we need to, to keep in our mind so that our vocation and our calling is clear that he will rule and he will dwell with us. That it's not that we become someone with the universe or one with God even necessarily is that he will dwell with his people. That's the promise that we hold on to. And so what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 65 is this, the, the, the already not yet theology. That's what theologians call it, that we live in this time of already not yet. The king has been inaugurated, the kingdom has been launched, but it hasn't been consummated. And that's what Isaiah is talking about in chapter 65. So let me read this passage um, so we have an idea of where we're going here. Isaiah 65, I'm reading uh, verses 17 through 25, the end of the chapter. Behold, and notice that it will sound very familiar to Revelation 21. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought as a mere youth. He who fails to reach 
a hundred will be considered accursed. They build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the day of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain. They will not bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. And before they call, I will answer. While they're speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the food of the serpent. And they will inherit no harm, and no harm will destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. That is the promise. What I thought I'd do this morning is just maybe mention four areas here where we, just to paint this picture of what does this not yet look like. Okay, Tommy Yagiri, okay, we're this already not yet stage. Nice, but I still can't imagine a world without evil. I can't imagine that. What does this look like? Well, let's look at four things. First of all, he says the grief will be replaced by joy. Grief will be replaced by joy. We have to remember here that we're also dealing with poetic language, all right? That there's lots of hyperbole, there's lots of irony, there's lots of imagery and metaphors. We know this instinctively in English, but for some reason when we come to the Bible, we think everything's literal, okay? This is poetry, so he's going to use a lot of imagery and a lot of, a lot of poetry. We, we kind of know this by instinct. I mean, one of my favorite Billy Joel songs is And So It Goes, and he starts off with, In every heart there is a room, a sanctuary safe and strong. The wounds of past lovers are healed, to heal the wounds of past lovers. And we all know instinctively that there's not, I mean, the heart exists with two atrium and two ventricles. We know that, but we don't think that, well, in the left ventricle, there's this little room here that heals lovers. We, don't, we know that. Well, sometimes we have to go to the scriptures like this and, and, and see the poetry, see the beauty behind this. And he starts off by saying this grief is replaced by joy. He says it, it, the joy will be there, it will be so, so great. It starts, it's, a, it's reversing the curse. If, if you go back to Genesis 3, you'll see the curse after, after human beings decided, well, I'm going to do this my own way. You know, enough with God. I'm not going to do it God's way. I'm going to do it my way. And what does God say? He says, from now on, the land will, will dominate you. It will be for, full of thorns and thistles. And, and you, you leave my way and, and there will be pain in, in child rearing. And there will be, uh, and you will desire, the woman will desire for her husband. We're not even sure what that means. And the husband will dominate the woman. And then we see this exactly happening in verses, chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis. We see the pain of childbearing when Eve's two sons, when one son kills another son. We see this in the, the domination of a man over a woman when they get kidnapped and raped. And we see our first harem in Genesis where a guy has owns women. And we see that playing out exactly. It's not like God is shaking his finger. He's not telling them this with a wagging finger. He's telling them this with a broken heart. He's telling them, saying, this is what it's going to be like when you leave me. This is what happens when you don't follow my way. You end up killing each other. You end up owning each other. This is not how it's supposed to be. And he says that curse is reversed in this chapter. He, back in verse 20, he says, they will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. 
It's a reversal of the curse. And he says that you will be full of joy. And, you, and the past will be like a, you won't even remember it. It literally says you will not even have the past in your soul. It will not even be in your heart, he says. All those despair, all that regret, all the grief that you're experiencing now will just be forgotten. He will forget it, we will forget it. It's like, you know, we're traveling this road carrying this baggage with us, and we arrive home and we drop the baggage and we go, I'm home. It reminds me when, <clears throat> when we dropped Katie off at college, and uh, except for a year in fourth grade, she had never studied in English before. And she didn't know what American teenagers were like, and it was really scary for her. And she went to, we dropped her off at college, and we moved back, and we drove back down to Puebla. And at Christmas time, we went and picked her up at the airport in Mexico City, and then traveled three, three hours or so to, to home. And she walks to the back door of the kitchen, I still remember this, and she's carrying suitcases, and she drops them and says, Que bonito. <laughs> How beautiful. It was like all that stuff, all that stuff at home, I mean, back at college, we're trying to fit in and, and all this stuff. She just dropped her plug and said, que bonito. That's what it's going to be like. That we're going to have all this garbage with us and all this baggage, and we're going to go in and go through the door and drop it back and go, que bonito. It's home. It's beautiful. How nice. That's what it's going to be like. And he says it will be replaced by joy. And the result is that there will be joy everywhere. And not only us, not only we're going to be joyful, God, he says that God's going to be delighted. He's going to be joyful. He's going to be happy. And we all know that, especially as parents, we know that, that when we do something or provide something for our kids and they're just thrilled with a Christmas gift or just a, a trip or a vacation or something and they're happy, what does it do to us as parents? It makes us happy. And that's, what, that's the picture we get here, that even the Father is going to be delighted because things are so good, because things are, you know, muy bonito, just beautiful, and it makes them happy. Grief is replaced by joy. In the not yet, dehumanizing is replaced with justice. We have this longing in our heart to right the wrong. Even when, if we were wronged or if somebody we love is wronged, we have this this longing in our hearts to right the wrong, to change things. And the way we do it now really does not help, okay? When the powerful want to right wrong, they invade a country and drop bombs or something. When the powerless want justice and they do it wrong, they, they want to right the wrong, they blow themselves up or fly a plane into a building or throw rocks through a window. But there is another way that things, will be, that things will be put right. There is another avenue of that, and that is when Christ confronted evil on the cross. And the evil was poured out on him, and rather than remove it and, and put it back into circulation, he absorbs it all on the cross. The worst of human beings on the cross. And then he came out on the other end. And he took away the fear of death, which is Satan's ultimate weapon which is evil's ultimate weapon, is the fear of death. He takes that away. This is justice. There is a new way of doing justice. This isn't about, when, when Isaiah talks about judgment, yes, there is judgment coming, coming. There is judgment. And frankly, we wouldn't want it any other way. I mean, when we see how people can be cruel to each other, we say something needs to be done. 
And this will happen. But this kind of judgment that Isaiah is talking about is not deciding who's in and who's out. He is making things right. He is putting an end to cruelty. He is putting an end to dehumanizing behavior. That's justice. That's restorative justice, not justice done out of vengeance and revenge. Dehumanizing is replaced with justice. Enemies are replaced by community. Instead of enemies, we have community. That's another longing we have in our hearts. We long for relationships. It's a human longing. It is central to who we are. And we need it like we need food, water, and air. We need these things. We need intimacy. We need friends. We need somebody to take delight in us. We need somebody to affirm us, to admire us, to respect us. Even if it's just one other person. I always thought, you know, when, when I got married, I thought, uh, the whole world, at least there's probably one person that doesn't think I'm a jerk, you know? And that was good. That made me feel good. That there's one person at least. We all need that. We all need something like that. We all need those relationships. And what he's saying here is that, that, that all will be welcome. Everyone will be welcome into the city. It's not that we replace Israel, it's that Israel is expanded to include. Just a few verses that I want to, um, I want to mention here. In uh, Isaiah 66, the next chapter, he talks about this continuation of this new creation. And he says that, uh, and they will bring all your brothers from all the nations, all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem and the offering to the Lord. And he says in chapter 56, Let no foreigner who was bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, to those who it pleases me and hold on my covenant, I will give you within my temple and my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give you an everlasting name that will not be cut off and foreigners who bind themselves to my covenant to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, to all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, to all those who hold fast to my covenant, to them I will bring them to the holy mountain. That's what he's talking about. And he goes on at the last chapter and he says, those who are humble and contrite in heart will dwell with me. Enemies are replaced by community that these are the people who will dwell with the Lord. And that's how I understand the last few verses, the last verse of this chapter 65, where he talks about the wolf, wolf and the lamb, and the, and the ox and the lion. That's how I understand. I, I take these as metaphorically, that, the, that all people will be able to be, instead of enemies, we become friends. We become supporters of each other. We become co-worshippers, and we dwell together. The enemy, the serpent, his food's dust, okay? But the rest of us are at a banquet, are at a banquet table. That's how I, I get this. And the last one I want to mention is crudeness is replaced by beauty. Beauty takes over. All the crudeness goes away. The creation is already beautiful. This, this is already beautiful, but we have made a mess of it. 
but God in the new creation will bring back beauty. Crudeness is replaced. Uh, Makoto Fujimura is a Japanese Christian artist, and um, he says this, that God the artist communicates to us first before God the lecturer. I love that. That God communicates to us first as an artist and then as the teacher in the scriptures. And I just think that this, this, uh, this longing to, for beauty, that it not only brings us delight when we find it, it almost brings us relief. When we see something beautiful or hear something beautiful, it's almost like, oh. I mean, for me, it's, for me, it's, it's, it's music and colors. You know, just, I always get a kick out of when, Kate, when Sue's wearing her colorblind glasses and she gets so excited about seeing a purple, you know, lavender plant. And I'm going, she goes, you see this all the time? And I go, yeah, I do. I see it all the time. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And there's this sense of relief here. And he goes on to talk about the buildings that are going to be built in Jerusalem and the, and, the, and the architecture and how beautiful it is. And we have this idea when we hear Revelation, it says it's going to come down from heaven. And we kind of get the idea that God made all this. Made, God made the city and, and we just get to live in it. But what if we're the ones making it? It originates in heaven. It's his idea. He may be the architect, but what if we get to make it? And I think that's more the idea of what Isaiah is pointing to, that we get to build these houses. We get to build these things and farm these land. We get to do this. We get to make the new earth into this thriving, flourishing, beautiful place with music and theater and, and, and poetry and good food and uh, just whatever we can make. I mean, we had this amazing lasagna dish last night from a friend and it was like this was incredible you know and think that that god is going to take this this stuff in the new new earth and new creation and amplify it and transfigure it and it's going to be amazing and it's going to be beauty and we get to be a part of it that's what i feel like that we get this beauty restored what if we saw the bible as a work of art instead of a bunch of boxes that we had to check off this kind of came true to me about 15 years ago and through some friends at, at Northwestern College in Iowa. And since then, I can tell you honestly that today I have a deeper love for the Bible than I've ever had in my life. I appreciate its complexity, sometimes its density, its artistry, and seeing it as this beautiful piece of art that, that, that communicates God's heart it is just amazing that, that we see this. It just, that's how God communicates to us through this beauty and through this, 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 this imagination that we will be a part of all of this, making you know, our farms and our you know, peach orchards. I love peaches, you know? Yeah. And all these wonderful peach orchards that, that Gary may be harvesting and growing. <laughs> you know, I just think that's going to be a wonderful picture to have, that it replaces crude, the crudeness of our world with beauty. So that's a wonderful picture. And that's where we, that's where we go. That's our, that's our goal. But what do we do now? We follow Jesus on the path to the new world. That's what we do. We follow Jesus on the path. We are on this pathway of genuine humanness, of this new way of living that, that we we provide a glimpse of what this is supposed to look like. 
That's one of our callings as the church, that we are supposed to provide this glimpse of what this new heaven and new earth looks like. We're like, we're supposed to be like a, a, a movie trailer where people see the movie trailer and go, hey, I'd like to see more of that. Hopefully they look at us and go, I'd like to see more of that. Amen. That's what we're supposed to be. Jesus has confronted evil and we get to live it out through the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And we catch, the, it catch a glimpse of that. So imagine that there's no evil. Uh, that's hard to do. But Isaiah, the New Testament, Revelation gives us a glimpse of what that looks like. And he gives us a few things here. I'm just going to, this is what God gives us to nurture our imagination of this new heaven and new earth. Leading of the Spirit. We see that in the book of Acts. We can see it every day in our own lives. He gives us the wisdom from the scriptures. He gives us the sacraments like communion and baptism and all that they mean. And he gives us God's presence, his presence in prayer. All these things come together and they work in a hundred thousand different ways for each of us. I asked, somebody asked me, says, well, how does a person, you know, uh, live the Christian life? Is there one, you know, what's the way you think Christians live a life? And I said, there's a, as many as there are people. That's how different it is. But basically it's these four things, the leading of the spirit, the wisdom from the scriptures, the sacraments, the prayer. God works in all these things as we get on this pathway to becoming a new, new becoming genuinely human as we get on this pathway to the new creation and new earth and new heaven. So the good, good news that we preach is that heaven is coming down to us. It's not that we'll be evacuated from the world. The, new good, the good news that we preach is that heaven comes to us. The direction is always God to us. And he is coming to resurrect our decaying bodies and resurrect a decaying, decaying planet. And so... Everything that we do for the kingdom now, whether it's caring for the, the least of these, Jesus said he's right there, whether it's writing music, singing music, painting, sculptures, growing peaches, fixing spaghetti sauce, whatever it is we're doing, that we're doing it for the kingdom, I don't know how it works, but somehow that will last. That will last in the kingdom, and it just gets amplified. It just gets better. And I, I don't understand how it works. I wish I could tell you how it works, but I don't know. But I just believe it to be true. It gets amplified. So many today, so many Christians today, well, really for the last couple of hundred years, it just seems like we just are obsessed with the end times. And, but Christians, the Christian expectation, the Christian hope is not the end times. In fact, the Christian hope and expectation has nothing to do whatsoever with the end. It, Christian hope and expectation has nothing to do with the end of history, the end of the world, the end of life. Christian, Christian hope has nothing to do with that. Amen. The Christian expectation is the beginning. Our hope is the beginning. The launching of the kingdom with Jesus' resurrection all the way to the new heaven and new earth, that's our hope. That's the beginning of true life. That's the beginning of God's kingdom at the resurrection all the way to the new creation. That is our hope. What do we do now? Well, we implement it. 
and we anticipate it. So those are the two things I want us to remember this morning. That God's hope, God's expectation, God's plan for the future, God's new creation, new heaven and new earth, it's something we implement now and we anticipate it for the future. That clarifies what we do. What we do. I remember when taking some classes on evangelism and you always ask the question, you know, if you were to die tonight, um, why would God let you into heaven? You know, and then if, you, if I could tell you for sure how you could get into heaven, you know, would you like to know if you were to die tonight? Well, I didn't count up how many nights that I've had up to this point at 64, but um, my odds are not, I mean, they're getting smaller and smaller for sure, but my odds that dying tonight is not that. And that, uh, that's a legitimate question. I'm not saying that's not a legitimate question. But I almost think a better question is, what if you don't die tonight? What are you going to do tomorrow? I think that's the better question that talks about the hope of Christ. If you don't die tonight, what are you going to do tomorrow? We anticipate, but we also implement the kingdom of God. We are going to celebrate communion this morning. And uh, so I'm going to ask Gary if he will come up. Gary's uh, our elder, one of our elders. Gary Wells is going to lead us in communion this morning. And um, I'm going to ask if, Gary, you'll come on up. And I'm going to ask the ushers also if you'll come up and, and uh, while he's getting ready to hand out the uh, elements for communion.